so here we are. Here we are. Soda City Speaks. I'm your host and producer, Omis Salmarahantula. And Dylan Gunnels. And thank you for joining us on our second episode of May. Very exciting. We're talking about, we're continuing our conversation on housing. Um, And uh, we'll bring you more about that before we, like who we interviewed and all that fun stuff. But, um, and of course, we have headlines as always. And we'll, you know. Send you off on your way with community listings as well. <laughs> this month we are not doing the fizz because um, we've just got so much to talk about regarding housing. Um, so let's let's do our headlines and then we'll tell everyone who we're talking to about housing. Jump right in. Oh, let's do it. Alrighty. So the saga of school districts continues. continues. This time it's not Lexington Richland Five. This time it's Richland Two. So that guy's a loser. <laughs> I hope that people have been listening to know what I'm talking about. Go listen back and back. listen for the headlines or at least look up Lexington Richland 5 suing for defamation. It is a wild ride. But in Richland, not to be overshadowed by Richland 2, uh, school board member of Richland 2, LaShonda McFadden, was booked into the Alvin S. Glenn Detention Center last week on a charge of threatening the life of a public employee. McFadden turned herself in and she was later released without having to pay a bond. The arrest came nearly two weeks after a Richland 2 school board meeting uh, where the chair, Teresa Holmes, filed a report with the Richland County Sheriff's Department that another board member had threatened to beat her up during a closed door meeting of the school board. Later, the state newspaper published audio uh, from that meeting on April 28th in which the voice identified as LaShonda on the recording tells Holmes, quote, I will fuck you up in a four minute long profanity laced exchange. State law provides that the penalty for threatening a public official is up to five years in prison and up to $5,000 in fines. <laughs> Dylan's just staring at me. <laughs> I'm just trying so hard throughout that entire reading not to laugh. It's not funny. I. It's not funny, but it's so ridiculous that well, it's funny. You know, like... What are we doing? All over the country, school boards have become this really contentious yes. space of politics, you know, and like um, oppositional politics. And we're definitely seeing, you know, what that looks like here in Colombia. It's... <laughs> It doesn't ever seem to really be about the issues. It's more. No. But it is just so heated and so debated. Uh, but I mean, in the I mean, not to say that our boards are useless and our next headline, you'll hear some, you know, good insight from school board members. But I mean, we, we tend to, to bring you the funny stories, too. Oh, absolutely. But they're they're real. We're, they're real. Re- we're reading them in the state and the free times and all those places, too. Mm-hmm. Um. And again, it is not funny, but it is so ridiculous that I can't help but yeah. laugh. No, that's definitely because right. it is. And you bring up an, a really great point. Like we have so politicized our school boards now um, that I also have to ask the question: What are we doing there mm-hmm. too? Um, but that's exactly. I mean, these exchanges are getting so heated, so divisive, so personal, mm-hmm. and you know, I'm gonna f you up, and then I'm gonna sue you. So. Fun times. But, you know, the students, right? It's all about the students. After a spat of gun incidents, Richland One School District has installed metal detectors and started searching students' bags right after spring break without consulting police. 
Richland 1 School District Board member Robert Lomanak said that while security and safety are major concerns in the state's ninth largest district, schools have gone overboard. Lamanak said he has heard about a high school student who had a nail clipper taken away and that hair picks with metal teeth, primarily used by black students, were confiscated while white students were able to keep their combs. So I heard at um, Dreer High School that uh, bras were being taken away, EpiPens. Bras? Yeah. Like not off the person, like if the bra was in your bag. This is the rumors that are going around. Taken away, EpiPens and plastic forks. But apparently that's a thing. That is a thing. I had no... The the forking. Richland County Sheriff Leon Lott said that the district's decision, independent of his department, did not cause any problems for his deputies. District officials would normally talk with his agency about major security changes like adding metal detectors beforehand, but it is not required. Before the new security measures, Richland 1 students' bags could be searched under reasonable suspicion and only by a school administrator. But since the introduction of metal detectors in late April, almost every student walking through them has their bag searched by a security guard. Mm-hmm. Every school in the district does not have metal detectors and searches every day. Since April, metal detectors have appeared in schools at random. So another story from Dreer is that I was talking, some of, some of the students were talking about it. I don't work at Dreer or anything. I just happened to be there um, because my stepdaughter goes there. And um, they were saying, like, they're really smart. They're like, this because administrators weren't able to check our bags regularly that's why they brought in the metal detectors so that they have a reason to check everyone's bags and this is what students are saying like they know what's going on and they know this is a ploy um to control students and you know i'm sure to control not like more than guns like drugs and whatnot but Mm -hmm. i mean what are they confiscating bras and EpiPens and Mm. forks and I'm sure you know with all that's going on in the state it's like why do you have condoms in your bag like why do you have a phone number for an abortion clinic you know like why do you have tampons or pads like I I, I just where does it stop right yeah yeah I mean I, I don't when I was in school I don't remember administration having the authority to search our bags at random that never happened to me Mm -hmm. so even to hear that they have the authority and again it's like you backtrack for a second and you understand where it's coming from right let's be clear Mm -hmm. Uh, the two of us sitting at this table are huge proponents of gun control Mm -hmm. huge proponents of ending gun violence Mm -hmm heartbroken by every incident that occurs at any school or any mall or any religious institution or anything that's related to gun violence, period. So let me get that on record before Mm -hmm. somebody comes back and says anything. I hope that we know that we're all in agreement that something (laughs) needs to happen. But not this. But this doesn't feel like it. No. It just doesn't. And, And it's like you said, where does it end? Because that's that's the nature of it every time is that it starts with a precautionary measure. Mm-hmm. It's a reaction to what's happened and then it devolves into something more mm-hmm. and now we're we're stuck in it. Mm-hmm. And and that concerns me. So I Moving on. Moving on. Striking Starbucks workers continue to picket outside the Starbucks on Millwood Avenue, even as scab workers from other locations were brought in to work. The strike started after the Millwood store's manager was fired over the unionization efforts, according to a striking worker. 
The manager was fired for resisting managers who wanted her to participate in tactics to, quote, scare her employees out of unionizing. And that, according to a statement from the South Carolina branch of the Industrial Workers of the World Union. The Industrial Workers Branch also accused Starbucks managers of threatening employees' benefits if they approved a union. The store has begun the process of voting to unionize and results will be announced on May 26th. Starbucks stores throughout the country have been unionizing since workers at a Buffalo store in New York State became the first in the chain to formally join a union in late 2021. Stores in Anderson and Sumter have petitioned to hold a union vote, and there have been labor organization pushes at stores in North Carolina, in Durham, and in Raleigh. At least three Starbucks stores in Georgia and another four in Tennessee have petitioned to unionize. You have anything to add? Uh-huh. Power to the people. I'm a huge <laughs> union supporter. An historic building in the Five Points neighborhood is slated to become an independent bookstore and Yay. cafe. A local team intends to open all good books at 734 Hardin Street, according to Clint Wallace, a professor of tax law at the University of South Carolina, who is a part of the project team. Interesting connection there, professor of tax law. I love it. Opens a bookstore. I love that, though. <laughs> At 3,100 square feet, the planned store and cafe would create the kind of sizable independent retailer of new books that Columbia has lacked for years. And there is a great used and new bookstore that recently opened in the last couple of years, Audubon Books in the oh, yeah. Arcade Mall um, on Main Street. So, And, you know, there's Ed's Editions, and mm-hmm. so we've got some great bookstores now. It's really it's really looking good in Columbia. I love Odd Bird. Check I love them Odd out. Bird. And in related news, only that it has to do with five points, <laughs> has had fewer issues with underage drinking and related problems since numerous bars began operating under tighter rules. Yay! Less alcohol abuse, more books. <laughs> <laughs> During the recent school year, there were fewer citations for underage drinking and fewer trips to the hospital for University of South Carolina first-year students, according to the police and the university. The drop in alcohol-related problems is seen in other parts of Columbia, as well as there being no increase of problems in neighborhoods or private student housings that correspond to the reduced issues in five points. So among the rules that bars now operate under include required checks of all identifications with the new high-tech scanners to foil the frequent use of fake IDs. Bars cannot offer specials on alcoholic drinks and must charge at least $3 per beer and $3.50 for a liquor drink. And bars must keep records of all ID scans and be ready to provide those and security camera footages of bar areas to local enforcement upon request. I don't know how I feel about this increased surveillance and cameras, but I mean, it is good to hear that alcohol um, incidences are being reduced. But again, I don't know if this is the way to go. I think more education, conversations about consent you know, addressing rape culture are really ways to reduce um, alcohol abuse. Reducing the drinking age, I think, is also an important way of doing that. Since we've been editorializing on everything today, that's that's my opinion. <laughs> I agree to an extent, although okay. I am happy to see this happening. I think that, I mean, let's be honest, five points on a Friday and Saturday night when school is in session at USC 
I'm not a saint. I'm not going to act like I didn't underage drink in college. So let's not even go there. I'm not, that's not my point. But my point is it does become a lot for law enforcement to handle because the infrastructure in five points is so bad. Mm -hmm. All right. There's your headlines with a lot of commentary. commentary. It's been fun. It's been and fun. of course, credited to the headlines are credited yes. to the state, Post and Courier, Free Times, and Cola Today. The commentary and editorializing is credited to Soda City Speaks. Us. All right. All right, my friend. Well, I guess we're jumping into our features. Our featured conversations. And I just have to say that unfortunately, we had to cut it as far as how many people we could talk to mm -hmm. because there are so many more organizations in the Midlands that are doing something related to housing. Mm -hmm. um, we've said it a hundred times now that housing is such a multifaceted mm -hmm. um, issue that there's just too much. We could have done this for months. So anyway, I just wanted to point that out. Like we, we had Lauren Taylor on in the first episode. If you haven't caught that, you, um, you don't have to listen to that episode to have the context necessarily, but uh, would encourage you to listen to that. So again, that conversation was about the economy, uh, the history of housing affordability, how real estate market manipulation is playing a factor, um, all of that. And then we wanted to shift the conversation in this episode to individuals that are trying to do work related around housing. So at the end of that episode, Lauren talked about the strategy at her organization, mm -hmm. Haven Home. Uh, which is more of a market-based solution. It is a nonprofit utilizing uh, investor capital to try and combat the rate at which investors are purchasing housing. Um, and so this episode, we sat down with um, Jackie Utley and Lizzie Van Harn, who are with More Justice. Um, they're a grassroots uh, interfaith organization that works with multiple congregations across the Midlands to solve various issues, but housing is one of their focus issues, and particularly they're focused on trying to start a housing trust fund. Mm -hmm. And then our other conversation is with Yvonne DeBean, who is the interim uh, executive director at the Housing Authority. And so hopefully you can see, you know, the first episode with Lauren uh, touched on a market-based solution with a nonprofit working with investors. Now we're touching on grassroots community organizers that are trying to um, organize in the community to make a difference around housing with the Housing Trust Fund, as well as kind of that governmental view mm -hmm. of a housing authority. So long-winded introduction, but I wanted you to kind of see where it came from. I love that. Thank you for bringing that all together. And as uh, Dylan said, you don't have to listen to the last episode, but we definitely suggest that you do. I want you to go all the way back to the very beginning and listen to Mayor Benjamin. <laughs> so if you haven't been with us the whole time, go back. Yeah, it's all on your, on your, on your podcast feed right there. Um, so yeah, let's take a listen to both of these amazing interviews. Here we go. Soda City, we're back for another conversation about housing affordability and the crisis that we're facing in the nation and right here in the Midlands. Hopefully you listened to part one uh, where we really dug into history and economy, really talked in. about uh, investors, we talked about market manipulation. Um, and so now the conversation, we want to expound upon that, um, but also learn more about what our community partners and community advocates are doing right here in the Midlands to combat the crisis uh, and what that looks like. So we're joined today with Yvonne DeBean, who is the interim CEO of the Columbia Housing Authority. 
Um, and so why don't you just start by introducing yourself? Uh, sure. And tell us what y'all do. Thank you so much, Dylan, for that introduction. And I especially appreciate that you pronounced my name correctly. <laughs> you got it. I don't always get that. Um, again, my name is Evonda Bean, Interim CEO for Columbia Housing. And I am so excited to be joining you all here today. Um, and especially to talk about this extremely important topic um, of the affordable housing crisis that we're facing today. I represent uh, two organizations, actually, Columbia Housing and also Casey Housing. Mm. Um, we serve collectively over 6,500 families um, in Richland and Lexington counties. And um, we provide affordable housing through two um Major programs, uh, one includes the public housing program, which uh, is comprised basically of properties that are owned by Columbia Housing or Casey Housing. And also um, our second largest program is the Housing Choice Voucher Program, more commonly known as Section 8, where we um, work with uh, landlords. Um, we provide rental assistance to landlords um, on behalf of eligible families, affording them an opportunity to rent properties in the private mar market or the private sector. We also have um, <laughs> several oh, other um, supportive um, or support services type programs where um, we uh, work very closely with our residents to uh, address whatever the needs are holistically. So those needs outside of housing, um, sometimes it may be um, you know, working with them on things such as finances or credit or um, how to become homeowner, homeowners. Um, we are huge uh, proponents of homeownership. In fact, we've had a homeownership program for 20 plus years now. And most people don't know about our homeownership program, but individuals who are, in fact, voucher holders uh, do have the option of taking that voucher and actually purchasing property as opposed to renting property. So it works the same way where the rental assistance is paid to the landlord on behalf of the family. Instead, it will be paid to a mortgage company or that financial institution on behalf of the family for the purpose of, at some point, owning the home. So um, we also have uh, nonprofit subsidiaries or affiliates, um, as we often refer to them. And these are... Uh, nonprofit entities that allow us to do um, continue to further our mission of providing affordable housing. Um, and so we've been very, very, very successful through those um, entities in uh, being able to create more affordable housing. Uh, one of the programs that um, we're super excited about and, and, and actually just fairly new to the agency is we've exercised our right to issue bonds. Um, under state law, housing authorities in South Carolina can issue bonds. And not until probably the 2000s, um, housing authorities actually issued them. We actually, within the last um, year or so, have been issuing bonds and are scheduled through the end of this year, we, we anticipate we'll probably um, create more than 1,700 affordable housing units. And I say we create it. It's not that we're creating. We're actually issuing the bonds to private developers. So we, we partner with them. We act as a conduit. Um, but through that particular initiative and those partnerships, that's an additional 1,700 units that we will have, yes, in, injected into the affordable housing market. 
So the the thing that I mean I found interesting about that is that I always thought I mean I guess it's it's a technicality and also I'm Canadian but I always thought Section Eight housing was um, not the voucher program but the actual housing units that you all owned so that was interesting. Uh, oh um, wow! Well, I'm glad that I could clear that up yeah, for you. Yeah, that was because I, if, if you had that that understanding, I'm sure others may have had mm-hmm. the same. There so. are certainly others because we've had yeah. conversations with folks that think that. But is that, that a is the, in Canada, is that a different hmm. We don't even, we don't call it. Section eight? I don't even think, we don't have a voucher program. Okay. And we call it subsidized housing, okay. I think, is the, is the and term it is. And it is. And it is it subsidized, is subsidized housing. housing. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and the other thing, like the bonds is especially interesting. Um, yeah. I, I did not know that. And just another question on the side. Sure. Um, you run Casey Housing and Columbia Housing? Yes. So, so how does that work? So we actually have um, an agreement with HUD uh, to manage Casey Housing. Casey Housing is comprised of 41 units, so it's it's a lot smaller, obviously, mm-hmm. than Columbia Housing. But yes, we, we are super excited to um, have that responsibility. The board is um, fantastic. Um, they are absolutely great to work with. And... Um, we're doing some renovating in that space as well. So we're super excited about what we're doing at Casey too. Right. And that's fairly recent, right? The, yes. the partnership with Casey. So no, 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 no. The partnership with Casey isn't recent. Oh, we've had this partnership forever. <laughs> no, but the, the renovations are, are fairly recent. We've actually just started to renovate some of the units there in the last six months, six months or so. So I think that's a great segue because I want to get to this point um, because I think it's extremely important for the community at large um, and clearly for me. I I started the day off by saying Chad, which I was completely incorrect there. (laughs) Um, I just assumed that Casey was fairly new. And so but I don't think I'm alone in some of that. And, and, and I take full responsibility, right? Like that's my own ignorance for not always reading the e-blast and, and taking, you know, look, looking at y'all's marketing. I do, and, but I'll, I'll recognize it. That is a responsibility on me. And we actually just met with uh, some of your folks yesterday who um, do, I think it's the transitional housing or permanent transition Permanent housing. supportive housing. Supportive yes. housing. Um, yes, so that's we have not, homeless there's... programs. We are a yes. continuum of care provider. Yes. So, yes. We... So, so many programs. Yes. <laughs> and that's to your point, what you were yes. saying. There's yes. so many programs. So, um, talk to us a little bit more about what exactly is a housing authority? Um, you know, because yeah. I think a lot of people have an idea of it's subsidized housing or it's mm-hmm. government housing and um, they only work with Section 8, but you all do so much more. And so what would you like to say to, to folks like me in the community um, that just don't know? What else do you do and how do we learn more about it? Yeah, certainly. So housing authorities, you know, differ from community to community, city to city, state to state. Um, housing authorities are typically created through state enabling legislation. We act, although we're created through state enabling legislation, we act as our own separate entity. Um, our board for us, Columbia Housing, is comprised of seven volunteer um, commissioners who are appointed by the mayor and ratified by city council. Um, we are historically have been um, the single largest affordable housing provider in, in most cities is what you, you will find um, for housing authorities. We are, however, much bigger than 
um, what I think we were when we initially started. And that's just because we've had to evolve in a space um, that would allow us to continue to provide affordable housing for the individuals that we serve. Um, historically, housing authorities have received funding from um, HUD. We receive our funding mm -hmm. from the federal government. Then the federal government has not funded us at the same levels year after year. Our funding has decreased, has continually declined over the years. And so what's happened is because there's been that decrease in funding, we've been unable to successfully meet the deferred maintenance or capital improvement needs that exist with maintaining these properties. So unfortunately, um, it meant for housing authorities, uh, we had to do something different. We had to think outside of the box in order to be able to address these longstanding uh, maintenance needs. For us, we actually, um, over the last couple of years or so, we have had um, a, a significant number of inspections and evaluations of our properties to really um, assess the conditions of our units. And what we found is that we actually have $250 million dollars um, in maintenance needs or capital improvement needs, $250 million. Um, we'd never be able <laughs> to fund those needs in the, the typical setting. So what we did was different and creative and outside of the box. And that was we launched a plan. Um, we're calling it our, our blueprint, um, which is Vision 2030. Through Vision 2030, uh, we uh, are partnering with private developers. We actually have... Um, nine development partners um, that uh, are some of the, the best um, in the industry, especially in the Southeastern region, uh, to help us um, come in and address these longstanding maintenance and capital improvement needs. Um, through those partnerships, we anticipate that we're going to inject somewhere around $500 million into the local economy. Um, so we're super excited about being able to launch such um, a big initiative. We initially called it, you know, uh, a progressive or aggressive yeah. <laughs> um, because it is just that rather ambitious. But it's 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 certainly um, possible. And through these partnerships who bring that capacity and that expertise, we're going to be able to do that. So what you're saying, in essence, is that um, you know, there's this idea that, oh, that's just the government. That's over there. That's happening over there. But you're injecting back into yes. the public economy. Yes. Um, what you're doing is utilizing private developers, private, um, not landlords. What's the word I'm looking for? Investors. Uh, property management. <laughs> investors. Yes. But also property management yes, companies. Yes, absolutely. So you are putting back into the local economy. Oh, absolutely. And providing affordable housing. Absolutely. Another way that we're putting back into the local economy is through the administration of our Housing Choice Voucher Program. Um, we, through that particular program, um, expense somewhere around $30 million annually. Yeah. But but most people don't, again, know or, or recognize the housing authority as being such a significant economic development contributor in that way. That is that is really interesting. That I never I never even thought of the government as a contributor to the local economy, which is silly because I know that, for example, SNAP is the biggest um, economic stimulus program that the government runs. So, yes, yeah. <laughs> Shame on me. so I wanted to, you know, transition a bit to ask you specifically about some um, housing projects and 
if you are a listener to this podcast or if you're following kind of housing in Colombia, I mean, we were discussing this before, that this is a pivotal part of that history is Alan Benedict Court. And, of course, recently we know that, um, you know, I, we're just up, up the street from there and or down the street from there. And, you know, every time I pass by, I'm like, oh, my God, it's just a big, empty lot. Yeah, and we know that yeah. there were some difficulties there um, with maintenance. Um, some residents, sure. unfortunately, lost their lives. So can you tell us about um, kind of the plans for Allen Benedict Court? Most certainly. Um, you know, the um, tragedy that occurred, you know, back in 2019 was certainly um, heart-wrenching for us all. Um, it was a very unfortunate um, a series of events to occur. And yes, sadly, there was a loss of life. Um, you know, Alan Benedict Cord is, you know, was, because it's not there any longer, it's, it's since been demolished, um, but it um, had been um, a property like most of Columbia Housing's properties that had, of course, its share of maintenance uh, needs. And so we were able to get approval from HUD to demolish the property. And um, we've, we've actually just completed demolition this month. And we have these exciting um, plans that uh, we're going to redevelop on the property. We're actually going to bring back more units than were there previously. So we're really excited about that. But we're also excited about... Um, even the design of the buildings that um, will be uh, on that piece of property in the very near future, because it's going to um, be very aesthetically pleasing and fit in with um, the community as is. So we're excited um, about uh, being able to do that. We are actually just at uh, the phase in the process where we're going to um, start to engage the public because um, again, when you think about Allen Benedict Cord, it, you know, as a pillar within this community meant so much to so many people. And so for us, we want to make certain that we capture um, that that rich history and that what goes back there is truly reflective of um, this community. So that's where we are in that process. And we anticipate um, by... 2024 will actually be occupying those units again. It is exciting to hear that they will be physically occupied by 2024. That's that a great timeline. Yeah. I thought you were going to say built by then. Yeah. Um, so that's great. Yeah, no, they'll be built by then. Yes, built by then. Oh, Not, okay. Did I say occupied? Mm -hmm. yes. Okay, I meant built. Yes. Okay, so okay. built by 2024. Yeah. And how many units were there originally? And you said there's going to be an increase now? That's really exciting. Yes. Um. We originally had, I want to say, um, so maybe 240, I think it was 246 units originally. Okay. But what we're going to put back um, are going to include um, multifamily units. So we'll have multifamily units. We'll have a senior uh, component right, as right. well. Oh, okay. Workforce Work housing. Work yes. housing. Yes. We, we will have, thank you for, for mentioning that. Yes. That will be, yes, we're going to have, and that actually came from the workforce housing component was a suggestion um, from our partners, um, Benedict Allen and also Allen University. Um, they had, through one of our initial meetings, indicated that they've had individuals work for them oftentimes struggle with finding affordable huh. housing. And yes. so Amazing. 
you know, we want to prove ourselves good partners. And so certainly if we're able to meet that need um, by creating workforce housing, then that's what we want to do. That's great. Oh, that is such good news. Um, we are super excited about um, our redevelopment plans for Allen Benedict Court. Uh, it will actually include, as I uh, mentioned earlier, more units than uh, the number of units that were there previously. Um, we anticipate we'll have about 160 uh, senior units. There will be um, over 90 family units, and um, we'll have almost 100 uh, workforce units as well. That yes. is amazing. Yeah, that's great. Super really excited. excited and and occupancy. We have, you know, we again, as I mentioned previously with our Vision 2030 plan, our goals are certainly ambitious. And so we we have um, an estimated occupancy or we had an estimated occupancy of December 2024. Okay. Um, but um, we've certainly had some delays, unfortunately, with mm -hmm. weather, things that we, we couldn't control. And so it'll probably be early 2025 before the units are actually occupied. Gotcha. But folks will start to see more construction. Yes, soon. yes, And I yes. think even just that excitement of seeing yes. Yes. More than just an empty lot. Because um, like you said, I mean, I don't want to neglect the fact that that empty lot represents yes. for a lot of people yes. the sadness and the yes. frustration of what happened there. So Absolutely. to see new construction and like you said, how aesthetically pleasing it's going to be. And <laughs> yes. That's exciting. Yes. Very Thank exciting. you. Thank yeah. you. And I'm sure you all are familiar with our recent groundbreaking of Oaks at St. Anna's Park, which is the, the former Gonzalez Gardens. Yes. Um, property. So we're super excited about the, the redevelopment plans for that property too. We anticipate we're going to have 190 uh, family units and 90 senior units there. So we are certainly uh, creatively doing our part to um, help address the affordable housing crisis that, you know, we're experiencing now. And that, you know, that crisis is, it's happening all across the country. It's mm -hmm. not um, <laughs> limited to you know, the Midlands or Columbia, it's, it's happening everywhere. Right. You're seeing, you know, the increase in housing costs. I mean, purchasing houses the, the, have, it's gone up significantly. We're seeing rents go up significantly. Construction costs have gone up significantly and rents have gone up so much. So I, I think the last figure I saw was somewhere around double digit percentage increases. I mean, it's really significant. Um, all the while incomes, haven't gone up mm -hmm. and so yeah yeah so it's um we've we've got some real challenges we've got some real challenges but we're certainly committed to uh doing our part um being i think for us it's important to uh work with our legislatures to um get them to understand the role that they play and how they can assist in some of our um redevelopment and development efforts and so we're committed mm -hmm. to doing the work and um looking forward to continuing to advance affordable housing initiatives. Because I do want to ask one more that I know folks are curious about, and, and I'm curious too. I had a couple, an elderly couple that came in yesterday looking for help just accessing housing. Yeah. And so, you know, we go through all our avenues. And when you look on the Housing Authority website, of course, it says, you know, nothing's available right now. Yeah. Check back. So can you just help clarify for folks what that means? Like, why does it say nothing's available? Check back. What does that look like? You know, um, I appreciate uh, your asking that question um, because it's something that's very near and dear to my heart. Mm -hmm. 
uh, I wish that we could provide housing for everybody. Mm-hmm. It's one of those things that keeps me up at night. How can we do more? Um, the reality, unfortunately, is that there just aren't enough resources to be able to meet every need. Um, we have right now uh, on our waiting list, sadly, we have about 5,000 families. Wow. That's significant. Um, 5,000 families that are in need of affordable housing, and we simply don't have enough units to be able to house everybody. Um, but um, one of the things that I always encourage people to do, because we try and, and, and the team does so, they, un- they understand from top down that it's important that we instill some sense of hope. And so certainly you get discouraged when you see that you can't even apply because we're not accepting applications right now, but we do encourage them to subscribe. Go to our website. There is a sign up news link um, that you can click on and provide your email address or your phone number, whichever your preferred method of contact. And the moment those waiting lists are open or there are housing options available, we will make a public announcement. They will be notified um, firsthand when those when, when it does become available. So that's what we encourage people to do. Thanks so much for joining us today and taking the time to speak with us. We really sure. do appreciate it. And I think Hearing your voice is really important uh, in this discussion. So thank you so much. Thank you all so much for affording us an opportunity to, 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 to talk a little bit about who we are and tell our story because that's not what we've always Mm -hmm. um, done very well. And so this was a great opportunity to do just that. And I really appreciate you all affording us the opportunity to do so. So the city. Thanks again for joining us for um, our series on affordable housing. We're sitting here on this hot May day with some watermelon. Uh, Reverend Jackie is rocking in the rocking chair (laughs) and we are ready to dig into this conversation. So thank you both for being here and we'll just start off with that. Uh, Just tell us who you are and uh, who you're here representing. Yes, good morning, Dylan. I am Reverend Jackie Utley and I am the pastor of the Ascension Lutheran Church in Eau Claire, North Columbia. Glad to be here this morning. Thank you. And my name is Lizzie Van Harn, and I'm the lead organizer at More Justice. <laughs> and That's great. You, I yeah. failed to mention that I am a co-president of <laughs> More Justice. More Justice. Great. Yes. And that's part of why we're you're here today. Yes. yes. Um, and so, again, just to recap for our listeners, what we talked about this before is that we kind of started this conversation with the problem, talking about uh, what is the housing crisis, how did we get here, Um, And now we're trying to talk to these organizations and folks in the community that are trying to do something about the crisis. Mm -hmm. Um, So let's backtrack before we get there, specific to housing, uh, whoever wants to take this one. uh, What is More Justice? And how'd you get started? And what do y'all do in the Midlands? Okay, well, let me begin by saying that More Justice is a grassroots, um, nonpartisan, Uh, interfaith-based organization that consists of over 25 congregations and we're culturally, racially, geographically, economically diverse um, and everything. And so we, it's an organization where the congregations come together uh, to uh, address the community-wide problems. We're the voice for the marginalized and we want to empower 
the marginalized and be the voice for them when, as we uh, address these community-wide problems to hold the city officials accountable for correcting uh, these problems and making our communities a safer and better place to live. And that's where more justice comes in. And if you're interested in how long we've been around, mm -hmm. it's uh, in 2017. In 2017, we... Uh, formed this organization, and it was a matter of, it was a, we have a process that's called the listening process that began with over hundreds, more than hundreds of people coming together in what we call house meetings, and it's where family members and people in the community can come together and talk about what keeps them up at night, what are some pressing issues and problems in their communities and such. And so uh, back in 2017, we actually came up with the uh, mental health crisis that people were suffering from mental health crisis. And then that got us started that, like say by November of 2017, uh, over 500 of our members came together and voted to address that particular issue. Mm -hmm. And so it goes on to our uh, Nehemiah action, um, our inaugural gathering that we have that in 2018, April of 2018, we actually gathered uh, over 1,300 people. And we gathered and um, it was first we did research. Our research committee uh, researched and saw that uh, a lot of mental health crisis, mental health diagnoses were people who were jailed. A lot of people were mm -hmm. uh, put in jail instead of treated. And mm. so... That was how we began. That was the first mm -hmm. issue that we approached back in 2018. And at that 2018 near my action, uh, we asked, More Justice asked uh, uh, Chief Holbrook of the uh, Columbia Police Department and uh, Sheriff Lott of the Richmond County Sheriff's Department um, to uh, what participate in a, a program called um, crisis intervention training. Mm -hmm. we, we researched and found out that that was uh, a fact-based program that was being used with law enforcement to de-escalate mental health crisis whenever they were dispatched on a call. Mm -hmm. And so we got them to say that they would get all of their officers trained. Back in 2018 is when they agreed to this. And so we can, more justice can say, proudly say that because of us pushing for that, that the Columbia Police Department went from having eight uh, crisis intervention trained officers to 189, and uh, the Richland uh, County Sheriff's Department went to having at least 109 um, officers trained. So that's a win for that us. That is a win. For that's us. great. Yes. So that's the beginning okay. of what we've done. So in terms of um, kind of the topics or the issues that you select to address, so you had mental health um, in 2018, I think you said, mm -hmm. and um, was there another one um, before you moved to housing? And can you tell us a bit about how housing came around um, to be uh, the issue that you decided to focus on this time around? Yeah, so in 2017, during our listening process, we identified mental health and education as our two priority problem areas. Mm -hmm. uh, in 2018, in the fall, during our listening process, that's when affordable housing came up. And then 2019 is when gun violence came up mm -hmm. as a problem mm -hmm. focus area. Um, for in 2018, when housing was the chosen problem area, um, we had heard 
through our house meetings that were happening across the community, we had heard the previous year a lot about the lack of safe and affordable housing mm -hmm. in the greater Columbia area. Um, and that's really how that became a priority is because our community of all of our congregations came together in these small group meetings and shared the stories of what's impacting them, that people were sharing stories of being evicted or being worried to make rent each month or having to live um, to live so far away from their place of work um, because they couldn't afford to live right nearby. Um, and the stories go on and on, or like in terms of quality housing, that it was unsafe with mold or plumbing issues. Um, um, and then once we have these house meetings, so I don't remember how many we had that year, but hundreds of people mm -hmm. came together. And then we have what we call our community problems assembly, where all of those people come together and vote for what to prioritize. So there are usually major themes of stories that come up during the house meetings. Um, so housing, gun, I mean, all these problems we focused on have, have come up every single year. Um, and so then we hear a testimony of someone who's been impacted by the problem, a little bit more about the statistics, what is the state of the problem, um, and then our people vote for what they want to prioritize for research and action. And so that year it was it was housing that that our members wanted to wanted to really push for. Mm -hmm. Like I think a lot of our organizing around social issues is around the issue, mm -hmm. whereas y'all are coming together as communities that are formed through faith mm -hmm. and then thinking about issues that you want to address. Right. Like. With the, I think with the understanding that people are multifaceted, right? Like it's gun violence, it's housing. Like these are all happening to the same people, you know, um, mental health, whatever it might be. And just, um, anyways, it, it's, I'm really, really fascinated and impressed. <laughs> yeah, one thing that we've learned and that's, I mean, that's pretty obvious is how all of these problems just overlap so much mm -hmm, and how they mm -hmm, impact mm -hmm. one another. Um, and something that I think is really awesome about the process that we go through is that we have such a diverse group of people who have different mm -hmm. beliefs, different backgrounds, um, mm -hmm. and we can all come together around what we believe and see and experience as the problems in our community. Mm -hmm. um, and where I think often the, the, I don't know, the differences in like what we might see in like headlines on TV, that's like right. disagreements about the solution, but we can all come together around the fact that gun violence is bad and terrible. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And the fact that people can't afford a safe place to live, that that's, that's a problem in our community. And so working to how do we unify as we, as we move forward. And because we're faith-based, um, we, the majority of us come together and we agree that, um, there is a scriptural mandate mm. to do justice. Mm -hmm. You say Micah 6 and 8, there's a, that's a scriptural mandate. And so a lot of us were educated for the first time to know that there's a difference between mercy and justice. Mm. And so we, we learned that the mercy acts are when we do feed the hungry mm -hmm. and clothe the, the poor and, and volunteer at after school programs, that those are acts of mercy. But the justice piece is when we look at the injustices and the in inequalities that exist in a, in a community, and that's how these issues come in, into play, that we like, these, these things need to be addressed. And, mm -hmm. and as faith-based people, we're doing justice by holding our city officials accountable, because we always tell the story, too, that it comes from um, Hebrew scripture. 
scriptures, mm -hmm. Nehemiah, mm -hmm. I believe it's chapter five, where Nehemiah was the cupbearer of the king of Persia. And then when he was uh, given permission to return back home to his people, when he returned, then he found that the people were being um, oppressed and distressed by the nobles and councilmen of that time. And they asked Nehemiah to come and, you know, to help. They were crying out. And he said, well, I believe we can get something done by organizing people. Mm -hmm. And so that's the basis of our organization, too, is that we believe in organized people, not just a bunch of people, but organized people. And so we follow that, the practice of Nehemiah. That's how we get to our inaugural gathering, the Nehemiah action. I always wondered where that Nehemiah came from. Yes. So that's good to know. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and that's a great segue because before we dig into specifically housing and what mm -hmm. you all are doing with the housing crisis in the Midlands, um, I, I would love to dig in just a little bit more about the structure of more justice and the process. Um, and so you've explained that you um, are a, a, a network of faith-based communities, you mm -hmm. are interfaith, mm -hmm. um, you are diverse. Um, you start with listening parties that happen in individuals' homes in the communities where you begin to discuss issues that are taking place in the community. From those listening sessions, that leads to you picking the topic mm -hmm. that you'll address for the year, correct? Yes. yes. And then as you address that topic throughout the year, you all are organizing amongst yourselves, you are educating the community, you yes. are going to events and meetings, mm -hmm. and then ultimately, like you said, it culminates at the Nehemiah action. Yes. But can you, uh, in the in between all of those processes, can you help folks understand what you all are doing day to day? Um, you know, Lizzie, as an organizer for the organization, yeah. but you also as the co-president, what are you doing day to day for these issues? And then also, if you can tie in this part, because I think it's interesting not a lot of people are used to elected officials coming to a huge gathering of a couple thousand people mm -hmm. and having to stand in front of those people mm -hmm. and answer yes or no mm -hmm. um, and mm -hmm. commit to doing one or two things that are tangible and um, specifically laid out in such a way that they can't give you the political answer they mm -hmm. have to say this is what we're going to do yes. i don't think people are used to that and i think in some ways, I was interested to know mm -hmm. that it was the faith-based communities yes. that were doing that. So yes. what's your day-to-day -day look like? And then help us understand what you think the impact is of doing it this way. Well, actually, I'd say day-to-day. -day. Well, first of all, we have uh, research teams who are researching the issues that we voted on and from our listening process and from our, from our community problems assembly where we vote on the issue to be addressed then we form we have research teams formed that they're doing the research of these issues and then we have steering committees and so periodically we have these meetings of these various committees like the the housing committee and the gun violence committee as such and so we're we're meeting you know constantly and because the actual organization consists of these congregations and so a, a congregation a church a synagogue a mosque or whatever would would have their people members of that congregation become a part of the justice ministry network ministry and so that's what each each organization each congregation is called a justice ministry network 
And so with that being the case, we're communing with one another on what we're doing about, you know, what part we can play with um, helping to be a voice um, for, the, for the organization. And so while we're doing these, having these steering committee meetings, we contact our city officials and let them know what we're doing, what our interests are, interests are, and then we have meetings with them. And of course, during the pandemic, these meetings were all vir uh, virtually, <laughs> but we met with them and, and we let them know what our concerns are and what our, what our next steps are and uh, what we require of them. Yeah, I was, I was gonna say, I mean, sometimes as a staff person, people ask me what my day-to-day -day looks like and I have a really <laughs> hard time answering that because every day is different and it depends on the time of year and just so many things. Um, but in terms of like what Reverend Jackie was saying about during, especially our research process, we have these committees who, yeah, I, I think it's important to note that when we choose our problem areas that it's not coming from the most recent headlines, what mm -hmm. people are talking about, it's coming mm -hmm. from the stories of our people mm -hmm. and the solutions that we identify, those also don't come out of thin air. It doesn't come from a Google search mm -hmm. um, that mm -hmm. we go through mm -hmm. a long process of many, many hours of meeting in terms of understanding the problem, meeting with local, national uh, experts who understand the problem so that we can really get a grasp on what's happening, who's mm -hmm. it happening to, where is it happening? Because like, housing is such a huge problem and we uh -huh. can only pick like one piece of that to focus yes. on at a time. Yeah. Um, and then when it comes to solutions, we meet with evidence-based proven solutions um, that are happening across the country um, and identify which one would be a priority and that we want to see in, in the Columbia area. Um, um, also during our research process, that's mm -hmm. that's also when, of course, we are meeting with local officials who uh -huh. they have a grasp on these problems that are happening as well. Um, and we're having conversations all along the way. So as it mm -hmm. leads up to our Nehemiah action, nothing that we ask for, nothing that we do is a surprise. Mm -hmm. uh, we let them know ahead of time exactly what the format mm -hmm. of the meeting is, which mm -hmm. is very similar to other meetings like city council, county council meetings, um, just a little bit different since um, it's our community who is who is leading the meeting um, and they have the questions that we're going to ask them ahead of time we provide them with the research we've done and so nothing nothing is a surprise so in terms of the theme that you guys have decided to organize around housing justice can you tell us a bit about how that came about um, in terms of the meetings and the listening sessions that you were having and then what is the solution um, that you guys decided on to focus on? Well, I would say that uh, we all came to agreement that just as air to breathe and food to eat, mm -hmm. uh, safe housing is a human need. And so we know that every child should, should have the opportunity to have a, a covering, a, you know, over their heads, a, a place to live. And so we know that there's a need for that. And when and during our research, when we found that at least um, more than one in five people were standing uh, to be evicted, mm -hmm. uh, right even now. And then we discovered that uh, even before the pandemic, that 16,000 uh, South Carolinians family members were paying more than half of their income for rent. And so that clearly is a problem. And that's, and that's just in Richland County, too. Oh, just in Richland mm -hmm. County. So, 
We know that. And as I said before, we're a lot of us who may not even be affected, like our members who may not even be affected by these particular issues, we care that the marginalized are mm. being affected and we want to to see their lives improved and changed. And so, Lizzie, I think this would be a more a question to you because uh, the pastor had said it before that you're the research one, right? Like, what were like what were some of the examples, um, and what was the kind of research that you were doing, and what did you ultimately decide uh, to forward as your action? Mm -hmm. During our research, we met with, um, and there are a lot of of organizations doing really great work in Richland County, and so we met with a lot of those organizations to understand the problem, what was already happening. Um, and then as we are researching solutions that have been used across the country, we identified an affordable housing trust fund as the best solution that has been working across the country. There are over 750 housing trust funds in the US um, and they work to leverage funding to refurbish, rehabilitate, create um, units of affordable housing for the people who need it most. Mm -hmm. um, one thing that I think is also important to clarify is a lot of times people uh, have almost a problem with the language around affordable housing. And so this housing is not public housing. This is housing for working families, for people who, you know, I, I'm forgetting the exact number. Um, I think it's a minimum wage. Um, someone mm -hmm, has to mm -hmm. be working. Maybe you know this better. Um, mm -hmm like 82 or 84 hours a week to just make ends meet. Mm -hmm. um, and so, and the people who need need housing most are the people who are at 50% or less and 30% or less of area median income. And I'm not trying to get in the weeds of all these Please numbers stare. and Please language. Stare, yeah. <laughs> so can you tell us how a trust fund works on the ground? Like what is it gonna look like here in Richmond County or what has it, look like in other parts of the country through your research? Mm -hmm. A couple of examples of places that have housing trust funds, Greenville in South Carolina, they have a trust fund, Charlotte uh, have a trust fund. Um, and one thing that has been really awesome during the pandemic as these cities, counties, states are all getting American Rescue Plan funding um, is that a lot of trust funds have put millions of dollars either to start their trust fund or towards continuing to grow it. Um, and so because this, all of the problems that exist in our community have only gotten worse during mm -hmm. the pandemic mm -hmm. and they've only been amplified. And so mm -hmm. using the, that funding to go towards a long-term solution to this long-term problem it's amazing that that's happening in, in communities across the country. And we really want to see that happening in Richland County as well, because the housing crisis has been around for decades. Uh, and if we are going to actually solve it moving forward, um, we can't use Band-Aid solutions. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, and so a housing trust fund would um, work because there isn't, I'm trying to think of which, one, I mean, there are a lot of ways that a housing trust fund can work, and there's a lot of freedom with how that would work. Um, part of creating the ordinance and the um, part of creating the ordinance for the housing trust fund means that it's established and it says, here is where this money will be used in terms of these are the people, um, this is the, these are the people who would benefit or people who are a priority. Um, I mean, every 
jurisdiction would have some say in if they want to focus more on grants or if they want to focus more on creating new housing or what that mm. might look like. There's a lot of freedom with that. Um, but where we are right now, developers don't really have any incentive to build affordable housing because they'll just lose money. Mm -hmm. And so what a housing trust fund will do is fill that gap. And so in those places that um, if de a developer wants to create a building with, you know, several units of affordable housing, um, they would get funding from the affordable housing trust fund to bridge that gap. And that's just one of the many ways that a trust fund can be used, mm -hmm. um, but that's that's one example. Okay. Um, so just really quickly, because you've given a great explanation of what a trust fund is, how it can be utilized, but let's take that. Richland County gives $10 million and they start the trust fund. What does that mean for the Midlands? You know, because we, we really want to bring it home and understand our backyard. So we get a $10 million trust fund started. What, how does that help change the landscape of housing in the Midlands? That would lead to the nonprofit organization that will run the actual program. So Lizzie, yeah. could you speak to that a little more definite? Well, I, and I will say, I mean, this, the Amer in terms of American Rescue Plan mm -hmm. funding, this was money that no one knew was coming. Mm -hmm. And so it really is just this incredible opportunity for our county to take action um, to really get this started. Because once there's money in a trust fund, then that money will be leveraged. It will be multiplied so that, again, we have mm -hmm. a long-term solution to this long-term crisis. Mm -hmm. And... I mean, down the road, what we would be looking for, because what we've learned about housing trust funds is they they really need a dedicated source of funding in order to be successful. And so we would be looking for that down the road. But first step is getting it started, um, getting the ordinance created so that when there is money to go into the trust fund, that there's already legislation that says XYZ is how it will be used. Mm -hmm. um, and so that, I mean, every kind of one-time payment um, wouldn't have to come with with new parameters that we already know this is how we've decided to prioritize um, and it needs to go to the people who need it most. And that would transform our community. Once we have a trust fund, um, it's, I mean, I see a world that's not going to happen overnight, but I see... Uh, Richland County where we don't hear stories anymore in our house meetings about people not being able to make rent mm -hmm. um, about people worrying about being evicted about people developing asthma or other health conditions from living in unsafe places mm -hmm. um, where kids feel safe living where they are um, and that's really what we're looking at and I know I've seen lots of headlines, lots of news articles about this crisis of affordable housing or one another, um, more people are displaced from housing that's being torn down without a new place to go. Um, and I just imagine a Midlands where we don't see those anymore because uh -huh, those aren't uh -huh. a shock to see these mm -hmm. days. Mm -hmm. um, and so when we don't see those headlines anymore, and I think about that with all the problems that we focus on, <laughs> yes. like um, what would that that would just completely change our community.
Great answer. I mean, you you put a little pressure on the county there. You gave a good vision. So, I mean, a lot of what we've been talking about is, is I want to say abstract, but like what are some of the stories of people um, living right here in Richland County that you might be able to share that can help our listeners really kind of try to understand the scope of the issue? Um, I can name a lot of stories and I can name a few that we've heard <laughs> recently. Mm-hmm. Um, like there's a, um, a mother who has an adult son who has not been able to move out and have, have a place to live because, um, because he can't afford the rent and um, anything mm-hmm. that he could afford is just not, not, not safe to live in. Um, there is, there are people, I mean, we have a lot of people from our congregations and so a lot of stories of people um, that have, you know, invited people into their homes and um, that that's where they've had someone live for a while until they can have, have a place to, to stay. Um, we have another story of a family who, a woman who was on the, the list for public housing for almost 10 years, um, had their family had found an apartment. Um, and then when their name came up finally on the list, they had to, um, they had to move there or else they would not be eligible for, for ever being on the, the list again. Um, and this was moving to in a location that was outside of their school district um, with conditions that were unsafe as well, plumbing issues, mold, um, but they had no choice. Um, and um, I mean, we have seen, I've heard a lot of stories from seniors of how they can't make ends meet mm-hmm. um, and how when they're already trying to make ends meet, um, they have children or grandchildren who they can't afford rent, have to move back in with seniors, and then they they struggle even more in order to, to be able to afford um, and make sure that they can have a place to live, that they can pay for their medication, that they can pay for food, that they can pay for just basic, basic needs to survive. Well, thank you both again so much for being here today and um, sharing again about more justice and overall what your organization does because again you know housing isn't the only issue that you're focused Mm -hmm. on Um, it's a major one but you're doing gun violence prevention still you're still doing mental health intervention Um, and as time goes on you'll you'll have another topic from your listening (laughs) session so um, thank you for sharing again what more justice does how you got started and telling us more about what a, a housing trust fund is and how that works and Um, how we can advocate for that and what a difference that would make in the community. Mm -hmm. Um, And so how can folks learn more about the organization? Um, Can folks plug into the organization, um, whether they're a part of a faith organization or not? Can individuals just join? Um, And then uh, what's next for y'all? I've had some people ask me, how do they go about becoming a part of More Justice? And I have some friends who... um, don't even attend a, a faith community. They're not members of a church or a congregation or anything. And I myself can just say, for instance, in my, when I was explaining earlier about what a justice uh, network ministry looks like, consists of members of a congregation, I have an imam 
um, who has not brought his mosque, his entire mosque, into the organization as of yet, but he is one of my network members. So he is literally involved with uh, this work of more justice as a Muslim, and so he's part of my network um, ministry. And, and I tell people, you don't have to be a member of the congregation. All you have to do is just show the interest. And Yeah, and I would, I would reiterate that uh, everyone is welcome and encouraged to be part of More Justice, whether mm -hmm. they're part of a faith community or not, mm -hmm. um, because it really, I mean, it's against our values if we had mm -hmm. any, any yes. really exclusivity. <laughs> we want everyone to be a part of this work um, to push for a more just community. And, um, and so there are so many ways that people can get plugged in. Mm -hmm. Um, and so you can find us on Facebook or Instagram, our main social medias. Um, you can find us at More Justice um, and or More Justice Ministry. And um, to the easiest way to get in contact with someone and figure out how to get plugged in mm -hmm. is to reach out to morejusticecolumbia at gmail.com. Awesome. Um, well, again, thank you guys so much for being with us. Thank you for what you do in the community. And uh, we'll see you soon. Thanks, Okay. Okay. And we are back. Um, I hope that um, you were able to uh, take a listen to those and really um, think about ways that may, you might want to get involved or learn more about the work that's being done in our city around mm -hmm. um, access to housing because it definitely is a really important issue. And I think, um, as we've talked about several times, it's really multifaceted. And this really gave us... Um, kind of a you know a, a a view of what that looks like and what mm -hmm. that means so thank you uh to more justice and the columbia housing authority yes we did talk about it in the interviews but we will link uh those organizations in the show notes uh and anything else that we talked about will be in the show notes and now we leave you but not without a treat is our community listings of fun things to do for the rest of May and June yes. in the city of Columbia. And um, we were just talking earlier. There is a lot to do in this city. When people say there's not much to do in Columbia, that is not true. There's yeah. a lot. No, I mean, truly, when you sit like we do behind the computer and go to Cola Today, Experience Columbia, mm -hmm. City Website, all these different places to look, I'm like, I, I could do something every day mm -hmm. and not do all the events that are offered here. So... I think that's part of why we put this structure together yes. when we started this was we also um, there's a method to the madness y'all <laughs> is that we also just we wanted to bring a full awareness to Columbia yeah. um, and all that's going on and so these community listings are just another avenue for us to say hey look what's going on get involved this city's pretty cool it is indeed so Behind the Scenes Tour with Historic Columbia is taking place on Thursday, May 26th from 5.30 to 7.30. And they will be touring Drake's Duckin' at 1544 Main Street. Um, it's $10 for members, $20 for future members. Oh, that's a great way I like how they it. do that, yeah. yeah. Um, and in this tour, you will tour the restaurant and experience a blast from the past while visiting the second story of Doctor's Care. Ever wondered what was on the second floor of Main Street? Well, now's your opportunity. It is. And what I was reading earlier here, I guess we have to do commentary on everything today. <laughs> but real quick, I was reading earlier um, that apparently the second story also used to be a restaurant. Oh. And so they're going to okay. go through the history of like people that used to come to the second floor of Main Street and dine. And Ooh, fun. it sounds kind of fun. <laughs> Historic Columbia is also offering 
on Thursday, May 26, it housed history, the candy shop's importance in the black LGBTQ community. Again on Thursday, May 26, from 6.30 to 8.30 at the South Carolina State Museum at 301 Gervais Street. The uh, event is free, and it will be a discussion about the candy shop nightclub and the intersection of bias across race, gender expression, and sexuality. Uh, Again, the event is free, but they request that you RSVP since seating is limited, and you can do that on Historic Columbia's website. Raise the Colors, a Memorial Day Remembrance Run, will take place on Monday, May 30th from 7.30 to 11.30 a.m. I will not be there. That is way too early. (laughs) At 4.30 Center Street, and it's $35 take part in the run. Meet at Savage Craft Ale Works in West Columbia um, to do the Murph workout. Have you heard of this? No. It's crazy. What is this? It's a big trend. Crazy in the sense that uh, kudos to the people that do it. No. Um, But it is in... Remembrance of a fallen soldier, I believe. I don't want to get that wrong, but someone um, who passed away, and they have this workout that they used to do, and it is intense. Oh, okay, I see. All right. Yeah. You won't find me doing it. No. (laughs) Small Talk with George Clinton takes place on Wednesday, June 8th from 6.30 to 8 p.m. at the Township Auditorium. Parliament Funkadelic, archivist and historian. Tim Kenley will chat with George Clinton about his music and his career in this one-on-one discussion. George will share stories about everything from his Funkadelic career in the barbershop to starting a barbershop quartet and on to the long, wild journey on the mothership. The event is free, but a ticket is required and can be picked up from the Township Auditorium box office at 1703 Taylor Street. Charleston's very own Benny Starr is coming to the Columbia Museum of Art on Friday, June 3rd from 7 to 9 p.m. The performance is the third program of the More Than Rhythm series at the CMA. After a sit-down with the host, Dr. Brigida Johnson, Benny Starr will perform with a full band on Boy Plaza to help celebrate Black Music Month. It was the summer of 69, and the opportunity to escape into live music led to an outdoor festival that would forever change a generation. That's right. I'm talking about Woodstock. Woodstock. Steel Hands Brewing is celebrating live music, peace, and love with their very own Steel Hands Woodstock event (laughs) with live music from Prettier Than Matt. Uh, There's live tie-dye. A workshop will be on site with a live tie-dye setup while supplies last. It will feature local artists uh, with one-of-a-kind creations on site. And it is a free event just like the original Woodstock. Just come together and celebrate live music in the outdoor beer gardens starting at 1 o'clock. The event takes place on May the 28th starting at 12 p.m. noon and goes all the way till 11 p.m. And the CMA's Affinity Group Friends of African American Art and Culture presents Modern Rhythms on Thursday, June 2nd from 5.30 to 8 p.m. The event honors the 10th anniversary of the FAAAC and is also an opportunity to meet the CMA's new curator, Michael Neumeister. The CMA Affinity Group celebrates Modern Rhythms, a new gallery featuring works on paper from the CMA's collection and showcasing FAAAC's first ever art acquisition, Oliver Lee Jackson's Monotype 4, which was recently gifted to the museum. The evening begins with a cocktail reception hour in the loft that includes the smooth jazz stylings of saxophonist Dante Lewis, light appetizers, and a cash bar. That sounds awesome. I'm definitely going. 
And those are your community listings and the end of another great episode, if another I must say so myself. Another great episode. <laughs> of Soda City Speaks, which is produced and hosted by myself, Omen Samarahem Tula. And Dylan Gunnels. Our theme music, as always, brought to you by Preach Jacobs. You can find him on all the socials at Preach Jacobs and encourage you to read his latest article in the Free Times where he himself was pushed out of his housing. Um, and he tells the story of how that happened right here in the Midlands, ironically, right after our conversation with Lauren. Um, so check that out. And you can follow us on all the social medias. We are at Soda City Speaks. And you can always send us emails with your thoughts and reflections and ideas at SodaCitySpeaks at gmail.com. Please email us, y'all. I'm looking to talk to people. And that ends another episode of Soda City Speaks. Make sure to tune in next month and... Let's Soda City... Speak to you.